0: I suppose if we were to give the conference a theme, not to improve upon the theme that has already been given it, to give it a side note or perhaps something under in parentheses under the title or the theme, it would be the benefit of experiential love. Every message has touched on the subjective aspect of the love of Christ. And tonight will be no exception. I'm going to share something with you tonight that is very dear to my heart. As I've studied extensively in church history, the record of historical revival and spiritual awakening. We desperately need, brothers and sisters this baptism of the Spirit. Don't be intimidated by that term. The Charismatics have taken it and distorted it. But I'm talking about a supernatural immersion of the Spirit whereby He comes in such a way that there is such a deep felt sense of the love of Christ. John Owen speaks of this. Charles Spurgeon says that it was a rare exception that he did not sense the tangible manifestation of the presence of Christ beside him in the pulpit. This is the essence of real love is Christ. Christ coming among His people. Christ giving us a very precious time, a refreshing time from His presence. Your pastor asked me this afternoon, he said, I'm interested to know how you're going to tie the theme of revival and spiritual awakening into the text of Ephesians chapter 3. But when you study revival, and then you understand more and more the biblical principles of what's behind real revival, that it is the sovereign work of God, you find that the very things that are the manifestation of the Spirit's strengthening in the church are the characteristics of real revival. A felt Christ. An overwhelming sense beyond knowledge of the love of the Lord. And then to experience God. And on top of that, the fullness of God. And then on top of that, as the text says, all the fullness of God. If we really knew what we were missing, we'd make this a matter of priority to pray for. And this is what Paul's praying. The church of Ephesus is all the theology, he doesn't write to Ephesus like he wrote to the Corinthian saints. Well, the saints of Philippi. This is heavy-duty stuff. And yet they were lacking, they were deficient in not being strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man. And this was his prayer. So if you would follow with me as I read the text tonight in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, the Apostle says, "...for this reason..." I bowed my knees before the Father. This was no formality. This was no figure of speech. He literally bowed his knees before the Father to make this request. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner man. To stop there and listen to this. As wonderful as the benefits are that he begins to enumerate in the next few verses, those are not prayer requests. He's only praying for one thing. One thing only. And that is that they might be strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man. And if that occurs then all these things that follow will also transpire. What does he say? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I mentioned this last night. Let me mention it again in passing. The word know here, literally in the Greek, means to throw beyond the intellect. It is something profoundly experiential. Once again, we do not minimize the importance of studying truth, studying the doctrines of God, studying theology, studying the essence of revival. But listen, friend, he's talking about something that is distinctly experiential here. goes beyond the intellect. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all... There it is... Not just God, not just the fullness of God, but all the fullness of God. And therefore, He gives a benediction which I'll not take the time to read. Because our focus will be on these verses. Verses 14 through 19. Let's pray once again together. Father, we would say once again with our dear brother Spurgeon... I need the Holy Ghost. I need the Holy Ghost. We know that He, when He has come, He will testify of Christ. And we would pray tonight that this would not just be another message in this series. But Lord, would You satisfy the longing of my heart, the longing of Your people's hearts? Will You give us... An outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is something far more real than something mystical or something that is radically subjective. It is something that is eternal and supernatural. And when He comes, Christ will be at the center. And so I would pray tonight that you give us clear understanding once again. For Lord, how can we be convicted to righteousness unless we understand? And how can there be any conformity to Christ or transformation in our spiritual life without a clear understanding? So please help us tonight to see and hear and to understand. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tonight we'll cut to the chase here. Listen carefully in the way of introduction. The preface of Paul's prayer here in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 19, or excuse me, verse 14. He prays for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. It is interesting what the reason is. Some commentators believe it goes all the way back to verse 1, of chapter 3 but yet I believe in the context what it points to is what he has just talked about in the preceding verse in verse number 13 he says so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which I remind you is your glory Some believe that Paul is saying that the reason he was being held captive was for preaching the gospel and its benefits to the Gentiles. But once again, other commentaries believe that the reason here for Paul's prayer is found there in that verse that they would not lose hearts. They would not despair in the midst of waiting on the Lord amidst such oppression of suffering. Now in light of all that the Heavenly Father has taken the initiative, brothers and sisters, to accomplish for the Gentiles, Paul is moved to drop to his knees and pray earnestly that the benefits of the Gospel might be fully grasped by all the saints of Ephesus. This is what it means to be strengthened with might. This is a defining moment when the Spirit comes and enables you to grasp With profound reality, what God has given us according to His riches and glory. The prayer possesses both petition and praise. And Paul requests here that the Ephesians might be strengthened with might by the Spirit first, and then he offers up thanks to the Father, who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that he could ever ask or think. Verse 15, you'll note, reveals the impartiality of God as He is the Father both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. What does He mean by this when He talks about the whole family in heaven and in earth? Well, we know that He has called His elects and united them together as one whole family. But now listen to this. This is important. Therefore, the phrase refers to the common bond of all believers who have been reconciled with the Father by faith in Christ. It does not refer to God giving each of His children names like some people presuppose here from this text. Rather, it speaks of all of God's children, whether Jew or Gentile, whether they're in heaven or earth, as being under the same Father. I like Al Barnes' comment here. He says, The expression is taken from the custom of that day in a family where all bear the name of the head of the family, and the meaning is that all in heaven and on earth are united under one head and constitute one community, the community of Christ Jesus. So with that said, it's interesting that when you look, at Paul 's petition here, you thought you might get the impression that he 's asking for multiple blessings for the Ephesians. But I say once again, he has one petition in mind that they would be strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man. I agree with Ravenhill who said that our prayer meetings have become a dumping ground for all of our woes and diseases. We don't pray for lofty things. This would be a good thing, an entry on your prayer list. This is what I pray for for my church for all of our churches, especially in the reform movements, that we would be strengthened with might by the Spirit. You will note that while Paul never uses the term revival here, he describes the nature of one. Listen, for example, you see that he mentions a greater dimension of love which happens in revival, both in our love for others and in God's love for us. There's such an overwhelming sense that God has come in the midst and the people of God expressing it in different ways, but the essence of this work of the Spirit is that all testify that they have such an uncanny and acute sense of the love of Christ. There was not only a greater love for God and others, but also a greater understanding of the love He has for His people. And so seeing the overview here of what we've discussed here in the way of introduction, I want to share with you just three points once again tonight that I trust that the Holy Spirit may use by His power and grace to cause to resonate within your heart. And to engender faith... That you might lay hold of this promise. That God, I will pray, and I will pray earnestly that you would strengthen our church with might by your Spirit. Now, the first thing I want to underscore here, brothers and sisters, is the need for effectual prayer. This, this was no common prayer, of Paul. And he was in dead earnest. Spurgeon talked about Roland Hill, how he was an epistle of blood earnestness. We need people that would take on the spirit of Elijah, knowing the dimension of the effectual, fervent prayer of righteous men and righteous women avails much. But do we pray? He says here in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that He would grant you, verse 16, this request. Now think with me for a moment. This seems to be very simple, and and perhaps you might tune me out momentarily. I pray not. But I want to emphasize the importance of earnest prayer. Paul was a praying man. His lifestyle of prayer revealed how weak he knew, listen, how weak he knew he was in effecting change in the lives of the Ephesians. He was aware that what he had written and prayed for them would be in vain unless the Spirit strengthened them to lay hold of these glorious realities. Watch this now. Do we have the same confidence? I would very simply ask you, do you pray? How often do I say my prayers, but do I really pray? Do you ever know anything of the dimension of this dead earnest prayer? Do we know anything of our utter weakness? Is our prayerlessness, listen, is an acknowledgment that we are too dependent on ourselves. I mean, we've got the best theology that money can buy. We know some of the choicest saints in the world. We've got a track record that's flawless as far as ministerial accomplishments. The only thing that we like is the power of God. Let me remind you that prayer is the language of the poor, the poverty-stricken. And those who posture themselves as beggars when they pray secure the strength of the Spirit. You see, Paul prayed often for the saints of Ephesus. And his ongoing pleas for them revealed his continued dependence on the Lord. Have you noticed even in this epistle, that three times he mentions how prayer is offered? Consider how often he prayed. He prayed in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 23, when he asked God to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation for their spiritual advantage in knowing the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance, and the exceeding greatness of his power toward them. That's revival. That's what he's praying for. But furthermore, you move over to Ephesians chapter number 6, he tells them that he's praying always with all prayer and supplication for all the saints. The unknown Christian said in his book on prayer, that the purpose of prayer is not to obtain some coveted object. The purpose of prayer was not to overthrow some stronghold of evil. The purpose of prayer is to know God. To know God. And so here is Paul praying. And by the way, do you know why we put on the whole armor of God according to Ephesians chapter 6? Two reasons, and both of them are reasons of prayer. To pray and to supplicate. And this is what Paul's praying for. That they might know this. They might know the reality of the whole arm of God. But he's praying for them. He's praying weighty things for the saints at Ephesus. Listen carefully. Here in Ephesians 3, he demonstrates his weakness by praying for their spiritual understanding. That through the Spirit's help that they might be able to experience the benefits that he lists here, he mentions for their walk with God. This is the thing that I want to underscore here. Brothers, just listen carefully. Paul prayed. He prayed because he recognized his inability to affect change. And he prayed faithfully because he continued to be consciously aware of his helplessness to affect change. You see, if there's one thing that I'm so disappointed in the modern church is... Our prayer meetings, once again, are more formalities than they are a spirit or a force that we're going to lay hold of God and we're not going to turn loose until God comes. While we might not like to hear it, I believe that we pay tribute to our self-sufficiency oftentimes when we do not pray. And many believers in our day desperately need to be weaned off themselves that they might feel the need to pray. It was Erwin Lutzer who said, In our seminaries, we are encouraging men to think deeply but not feel deeply. We mentioned that last night. But do we pray? They asked Conrad Murray one time, they said, could you recommend somebody to come and do a conference for us on prayer? And he said, well, that's very difficult because the people that pray don't talk about it, and the people that talk about it don't pray. (laughs) I love the definition Jack Taylor gave years ago of intercession. Intercession is a ballistic missile. They can be launched from a launching pad no larger than a place to kneel travel at the speed of thought, land precisely on target thousands of miles away, and there is no defense against it. But it all breaks down if there's sin in relationships and sin in the church. We need a desperate response to the call of effectual fervent prayer. If you shoot at nothing, you'll hit it every time. If you don't pray, don't expect God to do anything. Paul prayed. Once again, I like this. I can identify with it. A man of like passions as I am. But he prayed. There was nothing super colossal about Paul. Oh yes, God had given him revelations. And yes, it was a special call that Paul undertook. And yes, he was a witness of signs and wonders and apostolic miracles. But listen, friend, deep down inside, he was a man just like you and I. But he prayed. Secondly, tonight, consider with me the need of the Spirit's enablement. The need of the Spirit's enablement. I want to go on record here by saying, I believe in the Holy Spirit you hear me? I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe He is a person. I believe He is my comforter. I believe that He is my great confidant. I tell you, I thank God for the Holy Spirit. Amen. I thank the Lord Jesus Christ, man. God's unspeakable gift. But I'm so grateful that He has given us of His Spirit. Yeah. But you know, we minimize the importance of dependence on the Holy Spirit in our hour. He says, notice once again, Ephesians 3 verse 16, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. Now here's what I want you to see just at a glance, okay? Listen carefully. Throughout Paul's letters to churches and individuals, he uses such phrases as by the Spirit, through the Spirit, in the Spirit. He's dependent on the Father for his petitions, but he relies on the Holy Spirit to make effectual those petitions in the hearts of people. In Ephesus alone, or Ephesians alone, you see Paul's consciousness of the Spirit's work. Think about this list here. For example, Ephesians 2 and verse 22, he said in him you are being, also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 3 verse 5, Paul mentions the mystery of Christ being revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. In Ephesians 3 and verse 16, here he is praying for the strength of the Spirit. In Ephesians 4 and verse 3, he says we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18, he encourages us to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 6 and verse 17, he talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God and then ephesians chapter 6 verse 18 praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit i think he's sending a message this was something that was in his blood the man had a conscious dependence upon the holy spirit and the question is brothers and sisters do we do we Do we need the Spirit? The point I want to make is how desperately we need to be consciously dependent that all is vain except the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. To make the things of the Gospel, here's the point of Paul's prayer, that the the things of the Gospel might be made real to the church. I love the term. I mean, you use it, Brother Scott, I've heard you use it. I use it a lot. But when you get around certain people, you sense such reality. Or you come to a church and you say, there's reality there. Or or a certain man's preaching, or or when you talk to someone, there's reality. This is a tribute to the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard someone describe the enabling of the Spirit? Most of the time, they can't really describe it in very meticulous ways or detailed terms. They just said, I just can't explain it. But He was there. So we're not talking about abstract manifestation. We're not talking about something that's just vague, friend. There's a purpose for His coming. And when Paul said... I'm really praying in earnest that you might be strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man. There are certain things that he says that will happen if this occurs. And this is what we look at now. Notice if you would, in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, first of all, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Through faith. Now you will notice the word here that refers to something previous that has occurred. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. What's the thing that has occurred? He's praying that they would be strengthened. And the result will be that Christ will be, are you ready for this? Felt. Sensed. In revival, friend, that's always the case. Revival is a manifestation of the conscious presence of the Lord. People testify, both preachers and people, that when God comes and envelops the place, suddenly Christ is felt. Faith is enlivened. Faith suddenly lays hold on Christ by a supernatural means. It's like you get a sight of Him. Not talking about images or figures, I'm talking about you see Him through the eye of faith. You feel after Him. There's a sensibility there that begins to take place. Interestingly, listen. We know that we have the person of Jesus resident within in the person of the Holy Spirit, right? But what Paul refers to here when he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, he is speaking of a consciousness which entails an enlivening by the Spirit as he makes Jesus real in our walk. One guy in one of the revivals is caught up in wonder in a field. He's come from sound preaching. Christ has been magnified. And suddenly, in revival, the manifestation of the Spirit's might and strength. He is so caught up in wonder, and some guy comes over to him that has not been touched by the Spirit of the revival and said, Did you see who was at the meeting tonight in an attempt to condemn and criticize somebody that, in his opinion, was not welcomed? And the guy that was caught up in wonder and enveloped in the love of Christ said, "I saw nothing but the glory of God," and that's the thing. For it's amazing when God begins to move, you're just caught up. It's like it's a contagion that overwhelms you. It's a sense of the felt Christ. Secondly, that you're being rooted and grounded in love. Another thing to look for in real revival. The love here mentioned is the roots of His love are driven deep into the inner man of the believer. Christ's love. The idea is that the grace of love has been so firmly planted in the hearts of God's people that it affords a comprehension of love that surpasses the understanding, surpasses the mind's. In other words, you know love, you know the attribute of God's love. You can articulate it. You can spell it out in very profound theological terms. But all of a sudden, friend, it comes to your heart in force. Your heart is enraptured, caught up in wonder by a sense of the love of Christ. This guy that wrote this hymn tonight that we sang, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, he's speaking out of profound reality. And wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. You start singing songs like that when God comes on the scene and the love of God is being poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit, friend. Those songs take on a whole different dimension. You ever been there? I have. Another thing to look for is that they may have strength to comprehend, verse 18, comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know that love, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. And this is interesting, listen carefully. The word comprehend here means to spiritually perceive or grasp a dimension of Christ's love that surpasses once again the intellectual knowledge. The word, the word is to throw beyond. And Matthew Henry captured this reality in these words. Listen to what he said. Where Christ dwells, he swells. His presence envelops. It's interesting about the Puritan. You know, a lot of people only know him for their doctrines. You know, they're, they're so theologically precise, and we applaud that. But friend, these guys were profoundly experiential. They walked with God. They didn't presume on God. That's what a lot of their works that they write about, they never presumed on God's presence or presumed on God's work. They were proactive in pursuing God for that. But something else you'll notice. He says, the result of this, when you're strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man... Is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is rich. God has come. You see, the intent is that the Ephesians and each of us might know the fullness of the person of God Himself. To think that God took the initiative to send His Son into the world to not only redeem us, but to give us the full measure of Himself, that's glorious. Not just to save our soul, give us forgiveness of sins, and seal us unto the day of redemption, friend, but to give us Himself. It is a great thing that the very God in whom we move and breathe and have our being has given us such a promise. And what is that promise? You look at it there in verse number 19. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge and the offspring or the fruit of that is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Listen, brothers and sisters. Paul says that we might be filled with God. (laughs) That is an awesome thought in itself. To be enabled to encounter God in such measure is an awesome token of His love for us. But when Paul prays that that feeling would advance to the measure of fullness, I mean, to have God and then fullness, it's almost unspeakable. Unbelievable. But in revival, when the Spirit is poured out, It doesn't stop there. All the fullness of God. Blows my mind. There's a glory in the mystery of it. There's a glory in the mystery of it. So, it's interesting that Paul uses this term as pointed out by one commentator quite often, fullness. It is a favorite word with the apostle. He speaks of the fullness of the Gentiles in Romans eleven verse twenty five, the fullness of time in Galatians four four, the fullness of him that filleth all in all in Ephesians chapter one verse twenty three, the fullness of Christ in Ephesians four, verse thirteen, the fullness of the Godhead in Christ in Colossians one nineteen and Colossians chapter two and verse nine. But it means here that you may have I love this now, don't miss this. It means that you may have the richest measures of divine consolation and of the divine presence, that you may partake of the entire enjoyment of God in the most ample measure in which He bestows His favors on His people. God is for you. He delights in showing Himself strong on your behalf. And sometimes He's not satisfied by just blessing or benefiting you. He goes so far as to give you Himself in all of His fullness. So, what do we learn? From these two evidences of the strengthening work of the Spirit, the love of Christ's passing knowledge, and the filling with all the fullness of God... I want to once again underscore, listen, the reality of God's love for the help of the church. That's what He says. That's the desire, the outcome of it. To Him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That's the aftermath. That's the blessed benediction. Is this Is why we need to be strengthened with might by the Spirit? You see, understand, brothers and sisters, revival or spiritual awakening is a sovereign work of God. But while man is embalmed, listen, in these heavenly visitations, the Lord of the church determines the times and the seasons. You see, you will remember there, Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, He said, It's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father hath put in His own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. In the meantime, while you're waiting for these heavenly visitations, understand that the Comforter is coming, and He's coming quickly. And then in Acts 14, verse 17, Paul and Barnabas declare that God did not leave Himself without witness, for He did good by giving you rains from heaven. I believe that speaks of revivals. And fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Sometimes He comes just to an individual. Sometimes it's to an entire church or a college. Sometimes it's to a geographical location where everyone is swept up into the reality of God. And people bear witness that the love of Christ was so real. They could not wrap their minds around it. But there was a sensible, tangible sense of the presence of God. So listen to this. While the Father ordains these times of awakening... Man is actively involved in the movement to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We're going to sit back passively and say, God, would you please send revival? And we do nothing. No, friend. I like what Ian Murray said. I don't know if you've read revival and revivalism and then the subsequent Pentecost today. I tell you, it's a big promoter, you know, at heart crying. We love Pentecost today. But he defined revival biblically, Ian Murray did, that revival is the work of God enlarged in the life of the believer. In other words, you already have a desire to love the truth, to study the truth, to know Christ through His Word, to walk in His Spirit. To have a conscience void of offense between God and man. These things already exist in a true believer, friend. But I tell you, when revival comes, those things are accelerated through the ceiling. The love of God just is driving these things. So Matthew Henry did say, and it's a correct statement. Some people think Jonathan Edwards said it. I found where Matthew Henry made this statement originally, but he said, when God intends great mercy for His people, He always sets them to praying. And so are we asking God for it, recognizing our own inefficiency to make anything happen? To see sons and daughters who have such a bitter taste toward the things of God come to Christ? To see impossible marriages suddenly radically transformed because they're swept up in the love of God. You see, people that are so cynical and antagonistic toward the gospel suddenly give ears to hear what the Spirit says and they put their faith in the precious blood of Christ. Unusual things on a corporate level. This is revival. So listen When he begins to perform such a work of pouring forth this love, this power, on a large body of believers or on an individual, when he does this, the recipients are given a tangible, felt sense of the presence of God. Now let me close with this. Puritan Thomas Goodwin illustrated this experience very beautifully. By sharing the difference between a customary, happy, good walk with God as a regenerate, spirit indwelt child, as opposed to a child who has been immersed in love by the Spirit. Both are children of God, both have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, but the latter that encounters this love of God, there's a special, intimate, affectionate relationship there where they sense the embrace of Almighty God. It inflames them and emboldens them to be bold for Christ. And so, here's the illustration you use. Imagine a man and his child are walking down the road and they're walking hand in hand and the child knows that he is the child of his father. No question about it. And he knows that his father loves him and he rejoices in that and he's happy in it. There is no uncertainty in it at all. But suddenly the father moved by some impulse, listen, moved by some impulse, the father takes hold of the child, picks him up, fondles him in his arms, kisses him, embraces him, and showers his love upon him and then puts him down again and they go on walking along together. Listen, that's it, Thomas Goodwin said. That describes the enlargement of God's affection and love when revival comes. The child knew before that his father loved him, and he knew that he was his child. But oh... The loving embrace, the extra outpouring, this unusual manifestation of it. This is the kind of thing the Spirit bearing witness with our Spirit that we are the children of God. And in revival, friend, all of a sudden, all doubt is cast out. I'm a Christian. He is my Father. It's glorious. But what you should expect to see once again is there will be this enveloping, this encompassing of love, the love of Christ. And and once again, I could give you a list of specific testimonies in church history in these revivals and awakenings of people that testified to the love of Christ. But as one friend pointed to me just a few days ago, and I mentioned this in passing last night, He said, it's interesting that one man that is a student of revival said that the overwhelming testimony of these manifestations or visitations from heaven were described as showers of love. And I don't know about you folks, I'm tired of playing games. I don't like to go up and just shake somebody's hand, you know, and say, how you doing, man? How's it going? I'm oh, fine. And you just keep moving and walking. I mean, I want to see reality in people. I want to be real with people. And every time I get a little foretaste of what I'm preaching about tonight and God comes and meets me in a fresh way, all of a sudden, friend, all the walls just come down. Amen. I love people. And I'm real with people. And I notice in people when they... Experience these fresh encounters. They're real. They're open. They're full of reality. This is what we long to see. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the openness and Lord, the hunger of Your people. Thank You for this leadership, Brother Scott, and for those, Lord, that our leadership positions in this church and people that are coming and worshiping together. Lord, thank You for the insatiable appetite that they have for truth and for this closer walk with Christ. Lord, I pray for Your people tonight that they would be strengthened with might in the Spirit in the inner man. Father, they might know this felt Christ, this overwhelming dimension of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. In Jesus' name, Amen.